about form and meaning and about sharing the gospel and sharing God's word. I really uh, was interested when I read the, um, the morning worship folder here. And it's interesting in the, the one uh, song about talks about the God of Abraham. We're going to be talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob this morning because that's someone that, uh, that Moses worshipped. I also like the part that talked about the Lord's prayers, that you could mention that in also your own language. And um, I feel that's an important part because we, I don't know how many nations are represented here, but I'm sure there's more than I could probably count. And then, of course, the, the, the song that says, Here I am, Lord. You know, that is uh, part of, essentially, what, that's what I want us to be asking at the end of, or saying to the Lord at the end of my talk is that, here we are, Lord. Here I am. Use me. Whom shall I send? And hopefully the answer is, Lord, it is me. I find um, sometimes talking from the, the Old Testament or talking from the scriptures that uh, the Old Testament is not one that I've often spoken from. I find sometimes the New Testament uh, scriptures are a little bit easier. So I sort of go into this with a bit of fear and trepidation. Um, I'm thankful to the, the people that read from the scriptures. I know they were quite meaty passages. So thank you for um, reading those. I think in the first passage, we did miss a little bit. And it's not down to the error of the reader. But they talk about uh, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. You miss the parasites and the termites. So I just wanted to make sure we, we had those. The other thing, too, is that also not at the fault of the reader, but I forgot to mention that also we wanted to read verse 9 of the second part. And in verse 9, after um, the Lord says, if you, not pay, if you not believe or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So I just want to add that into that one. So Tony very uh, graciously gave me an introduction. As you can tell from my accent, I don't speak English. I only speak American. So please forgive me for this. I am, as I mentioned in my uh, interview, that I am a, a Methodist missionary by training from, um, from the States. And I've been in this, here in England for 16 years. It doesn't necessarily mean that I've learned all the cultural cues in 16 years. I still uh, make faux pas and I still make mistakes and say the wrong thing, but hopefully people just think I'm American and sort of, you know, forgive me for that. Um, but one thing I'm, I am conscious about, I'm conscious about the, the privilege it is here to speak in the, the Methodist Central Hall, the home of Methodism, the home of, you know, what a perfect place also to give a, a, a sermon on mission where the United Nations was founded. This is kind of like the, the home. So I don't, um, again, I don't have it all right after 16 years, but hopefully this morning I'll be saying words that are inspired to God, but that just aren't good ideas. Often I've found when I've sat in sermons, sometimes I think, well, that's, that's a, good, a very good idea, but I'm not sure it's really inspired by God. And hopefully my, that God will speak through me this morning. Now, I have an interesting title, as you, as you mentioned, or as you can see, Communicating Form and Meaning. 
Moshe, Rebenu, Musa, or Moses. I've, uh, as you probably imagine, I've done that on purpose. It's just to, this, uh, it's to get us thinking. And it's, it might be a, a, quite a self-evident thing to say, but God communicates himself. God communicates his purposes. He communicates his love through different forms, and those forms take on meaning. And I've put there the three names for Moses, which the three great monotheistic religions call him. And it's just to sort of get us, again, to, be, to, th um, to get us to be thinking. And why is this uh, title important? Why talk about this man in Exodus who actually lived between 1600 and 1200 BC? He lived a long time ago. And it's to illustrate the fact that humans create meaning. Life, as we know, is about creating meaning. And communion is the highest example. This morning, we had a communion service here at 1015. And that communicates meaning. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a, in a moment. But my theme this morning, my center idea, as I was going out the door, my wife said, well, what are you talking about this morning? And, you know, I often find that it's, it's often difficult to say something well in a short amount of time. So she put me on the spot, which was quite good of them coming out the door. And the message this morning is that God cares for us, that God loves us so much that he chooses to use our own language, to use the language and the, the forms and the meaning that, that resonates with us. And also he uses other people to do that. He knows us so well that he addresses what is important to us. That's why I've used. That's why I've chosen this passage uh, about uh, in, from Exodus and about Moses, and I've been thinking about this this passage for quite a long time. I actually heard another sermon this summer when I went to a, a Christian camp, uh, Spring Harvest, which was down in Minehead, and they were talking about Moses, and they talked from this passage about how God communicated to the Egyptians, and it got me thinking. And that was kind of I have to give sort of credit to that idea about how I was, knowing that I was gonna come here, what I was gonna talk about. So form and meaning, are they one and the same? Let's talk about communion, for example. You had communion at 10.15 this morning. Many uh, Christian denominations, they debate about what communion is about or what it means. For example, to I'll just, Throw in, I'll, give, I'll throw in some theological words here today with explanation. But, for example, is communion transubstantiation? And what is transubstantiation? Transubstantiation is that we pray and that the, the blood, uh, sorry, the, the, um, the bread and the water actually become the physical body and blood of Christ. Then we have co-substantiation, which is the, where we pray, we have communion, and that that the communion bread and the communion wine takes on a sort of a special blessing or when we take and part of communion, we get a special grace or favor from God. And then up on the other side, it's simply bread and wine. Now transubstantiation, some people take it so far that they actually will um, have the service, it becomes the body and blood of Christ literally, and then they have a worship service where they actually worship the bread and wine. Some of you have probably been to um, services like this before. And then on the far end, uh, before I came uh, to England, I worked in a, a less formal church. And the pastor there 
I was, I was on staff working with young people and with teenagers. The pastor there was so focused on the word of God, which, are, which is obviously very important, and the Holy Spirit, that we had to remind him to do communion. Two or three months would go by and we'd say, well, John, uh, I think we need to have communion. And he'd go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, we gotta have communion, let's throw that in. So we sort of last minute would throw it in. There, there, that was sort of at the far end that, yes, it was important, but it wasn't something that um, was as high a meaning for him. So we have all different, different uh, sides of this. Now, just as another uh, health warning about my sermon here, about my message this morning, I, I do realize that we are from many different nations here, so I'm sure that something I'm gonna say at some point this morning is gonna offend somebody. So that is just uh, part of it. I'm going into that, taking that risk. Um, and, but that's something I'm also gonna address, that hopefully my message this morning will not offend us culturally, will not offend us for something that we said or didn't, I didn't say, but maybe it will, it will offend us with the message of God, with the message of the gospel. So let's go back to form, form and meaning. That's my first point. For example, if we can think about this, when is a woman's scarf or a, or, or a piece of cloth that a woman wears on her head just a scarf? Or when is it a nun's habit? Or when is it a hijab? Or what, you know, what makes the difference? When is a cloth worn around your waist a kilt, and when is it a skirt? These are things that we begin to start to unpick form and meaning and how we ascribe meaning to something. Here in this message, we start with a message of God's compassion. And I love this scripture. I love the, I love the part where God says that he saw, he heard, and he felt compassion. I mean, this is a God that is very, a, a very personal God. He's not unaware of people's sufferings. He saw, he heard, and he felt compassion. And because of that, he sent Moses and his brother Aaron. So we start with this message of God's compassion. And this is about form and meaning. God uses form and meaning to communicate to the Egyptians. So let's look at Musa or excuse me, Moses. Let's look at him. Now first of all, I've played a little bit of a trick on you as far as calling him Musa, Moses, or Moshe Rebenu because actually it's none of those names. His name is actually an Egyptian name. He was raised in a Egyptian household. You know the story where he was in the reeds and then his mother uh, put him in the boat and then the, the uh, the, prince, the, the uh, Egyptian princess picked him up and he was raised in an Egyptian household by the Pharaoh, by the Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't it interesting that the person that God chose to speak to the Egyptians, even though he was uh, a Hebrew, but that he was raised culturally within the Egyptian household. He, he could speak the language, he knew what to say, he, you know, and also he was raised um, in a social class that he could speak to the Pharaoh. I find that very interesting. I, I just was sort of reflecting on that earlier. And God uses three miracles 
to try to communicate to the Pharaoh because the Pharaoh was having a little bit of problem of hearing God. Moses takes his brother, his older brother Aaron. Moses isn't a young man at this point. And God tells him to go speak to Pharaoh because he has heard and he wants the Hebrews to be released. And there, Mo, uh, Moses performs three miracles. Now, these miracles are quite important because these are miracles that, again, speak to the Egyptian, that speak to things that are, are meaningful to them. My question to us is that how would God use us to communicate to our neighbors? If God cares so much to send somebody who was a, raised as an Egyptian to, to use symbols or to use meaning that is important to them, how would God use us? How do we respond? How do we reach out to those that are close to us? So let's look at about the Nile. He says that he's, one of the miracles is that Moses goes and he takes some water out of the Nile and it turns to blood. The Nile was very important to the, the Egyptians. This was the, the lifeblood of the, of the country. This, this body of water flowed right through the center of their country and it was something that they held in awe. It was something that gave them purpose or, or, or meaning. It was, it was their, the, the renewal of their, their culture. Moses is told to put his hand into his coat or his cloak and pull, it pulls it out and it's leprous. Puts it back in and it's healed. The Egyptians were terrified of skin diseases. They were terrified of leprosy. Here again, God is communicating something that, it, that the Egyptians are fearful of, that he has greater power of, that he knows something, that he's aware of their fear. And with the staff... God turns that into a snake, and then he says to Moses, go and pick it up. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be picking up a snake. I don't really like snakes all that much. So first of all, Moses had a lot of courage, but he picks up the snake. And this is something also that the Egyptians, they felt that they, they worshipped the snake, or some people say that it was the crocodile. Either way, this was something that was very important to them, and... The, the snake and the crocodile were very powerful things within Egyptian culture. I mean, the Nile crocodiles are very plentiful even these days. And the, the size of them, they're like up to 18 feet. So the purpose of this is that, that God begins to, to try to work with the Egyptian conscious to basically show that he's more powerful, that he's in charge, that he is commanding the pharaoh Despite you being the king of Egypt, I want you to release my people. He was trying to use a way, he was using a man that, that was raised in the Egyptian society. He was using a man that knew the class structure. And then he's using three types of uh, powerful, meaningful things to speak to the Pharaoh's heart. Fortunately, Pharaoh didn't listen, but that's another story. Now, as I said, I've been here 16 years. I still, I, I, I feel like a Londoner. I, I think I still have my American accent, but my family doesn't always think that when I go back. They think I sound a bit funny. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, what God has used to communicate to the Egyptians. And I thought, well, if God was going to communicate to the British people about things that they worshipped or things that they feared or things that they valued, what would God say? 
and that wasn't really, um, it wasn't really an easy thing for me to think through because often when you're in a context, in a situation, it's difficult to sort of set, step back as, a, as an outsider. So I'll give you my little, this is just a purely opinion. This is not inspired by God. Um, but one thing I think British people worship is education. Now I have a young daughter that she's five and if I want to fall out or become friends with another set of parents, same age, all I got to do is talk about education. Where does my daughter go to school? Where does your daughter go to school? Are they teaching it well enough? Are they not teaching much? Is it fee paying? Is it public? Whatever. Should we do SAT? Should we not do SATs? I mean, I'll try not to have opinion come into this, but my daughter was five and she had SATs last week. Some people have views on that. So this, the point is that this is a very hotly contested, important point to, uh, for some British people. So I think there could be a tendency that British people might worship education. And I'm happy after this sermon, if anybody wants to correct me on any of these things, I'm more than happy. I realize also I have Martin here and Tony that will correct any of my theological points. What do British people fear? My view is that insignificance. Now, I heard this quote a long time ago. I was trying to find who it was attributed to. I couldn't take it out. But it was basically a gentleman, he's an author, that uh, was raised in the early 19th century, or uh, early 20th century, and in about the 1960s, he quoted, he was saying, I was raised in the country, or was raised in the empire where the sun never sets, and now I live in the country where the sun never rises. Now basically his comment was, he grew up into, into a, an empire that you know, had territories all over the world, but the sun never rises because he felt there was a spiritual or moral malaise going on in the country and that he felt that, that Great Britain had lost some of its desire to serve and to be uh, a prominent uh, voice or light within the world. Now, again, not a political opinion, but we have a referendum coming up. Is that about insignificance or is it not? I just think it's something that's very interesting. What do British people value? In my outside perspective, again, I think it's about self-expression. I often hear about people talk about British eccentrics and how they think that's kind of interesting or odd or something. Today we have, the Queen has her party on the, the Mall. Many people are royalists. They really like the Queen. I'm not saying we shouldn't... Um, you know, value the queen and her contribution. And then some of the, some of you might have been watching the Euros 2016 and some of the, the football trouble that we have. Sometimes people give a bit of um, respect or honor to people that cause trouble. It's a bit of this laddish football behavior. Now, rightly or wrongly, all those different things, it's just a way to try to shed a little light on something that British people might value, i.e. self-expression. And that might take many different forms. I think the point with, with mission and with serving and with reaching out to our, our neighbors is that we need to remember that God is bigger, and that's the whole point of this, this message today, that God is bigger than just where we're at. God is working within the whole world. God is present everywhere. 
It's more than just our, our microcosm view of where God is working within Westminster. And oftentimes, I sometimes meet people or meet other Christians that tend to forget how God has gone ahead or how God is working in other areas. And they don't include that within their viewpoint. Last week I went on, um, it was half term, or the week before it was half term. So we went up to Scotland and uh, had a bit of a break. Met a guy that was serving us at the, um, the restaurant. His name was Mike. And this guy was on fire. He was a Christian and you knew it. I mean, even within the first five minutes I met him, he said, oh, um, he was referencing about someone being a brother in Christ. Now, he didn't know I was a Christian, or maybe I'm, I was just glowing the, the light of Christ that he just assumed I was Christian. I don't know, hopefully. But Mike, he was uh, from uh, South Africa, and he had been in Scotland for a while, and he had begun to uh, put together this, this loose fellowship of Christians in the area. And he was talking to me about renewal and how God was working and how they were having baptisms. And, the, and he was on fire. I mean, he was, just, he was ready to just convert all of Scotland. And we kind of began to sort of ask questions, said, well, are you working with other churches? Oh, yes, we visited other churches. But kind of the view that I kind of had coming forward was that there wasn't all that much going on in Scotland. And certainly that the Scottish church wasn't embracing the gifts of the Spirit or baptizing. And I sort of didn't completely believe that. I didn't tell him that. But I often, I, I thought, I think he has a bit of a short memory. Now this is not to be critical of, um, of Mike, because I do appreciate his, his enthusiasm and evangelism spirit. But I thought about, well, has he forgot about Eric Little? You know, Eric Little was a one of the greatest Scottish um, champions, ran in the Olympics, didn't want to run on a Sunday because of his faith in God. Scottish, strong Scottish Christian, and eventually went to, to China and was serving in China uh, and being a missionary there. He even was interned in a Scottish, sorry, in a, in a, a Japanese a war prisoner war camp during the war, and he eventually died there in 1943. And what we even found out recently is that there was an opportunity for a prisoner exchange at some part during, during the war, and Eric Little was offered a chance to be free, and he actually gave it up for um, a pregnant woman to take his place. So I think about um, the sacrifice. And I think sometimes we just have a bit of a short memory. And I think that it's easy to sometimes forget that God is, go is going forward, or God is moving, or God is, has been moving. And I think it, it, it's encouraging for me to think of people like Eric Little, because he was a change agent. He was a, a person that grew up in Scotland. He was encouraged by his faith, and he went out and made a difference. So are we speaking the language of our neighbors? Are we communicating a language that they're able to understand? Are we offending them culturally, or are we offending them with the gospel of Christ?
You know, earlier the hymn, it talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The three great monotheistic religions, they talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, then we get into the, the thorny topic or point of debate is do Muslims, Jew, Jewish people, and Christians all worship the same God? Tricky. Tricky. People will fight you over that point. But that's not, a, that's not a discussion for this sermon, at least. I don't think I have time for that debate. But it has been talked about before, and it is important for this reason. You know, it has been spoken before. For example, C.S. Lewis, who was very well-respected, writer, um, Christian apologist, in one of his children's books in the um, Chronicles of Narnia, he talks about a Calamian soldier called Emeth. And Emeth worships a different god. And as he engages with the Christ figure within this story, Aslan the lion, Aslan begins to discuss with Emmet about how Emmet's service and devotion, self-sacrifice in the name of his god, Tash, how that's actually attributed to, to Aslan himself. Paul also talks about in his own writings about, about this. And again, this is not a topic about opening the, 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 uh, the hornet's nest of, of the doctrine of salvation or soteriology on whether Jews and Muslims and Christians all worship the same God. But the point is, is that if we believe as good Methodists in provenient grace, and what is provenient grace? Provenient grace is where God is moving before us, ahead of us, that when we are going into a situation where we're speaking or communicating to other people, that God has already been there. Provenient grace is God working in the hearts of people, God working in the situations beforehand, softening people, drawing him to himself, just as he was trying to do with Pharaoh. You know, that was a long process. He was trying to bring Pharaoh around so if we, as good Methodists, believe in provenient grace, that God is going ahead, then that impacts how we respond to other people. That should affect us. If we have an idea that, you know, God is probably already working in this person's life and, and you know, maybe he's um, slowly revealing to himself, if we have that awareness when we go there to, to the person, first of all, we'll want to engage with that person, and second of all, we'll realize that we're not the only one that's talking to them. Does that encourage interfaith dialogue? Perhaps. Now, when I, when I worked on this message, I purposely wanted to, to put a message together that I could possibly speak to a Muslim person about, possibly speak to a Jewish person about. That's why I'm talking about Moses. Because I thought, well, we all recognize him as an important person. So it was an attempt to try to loosen it up a little bit it was hopefully something that all the great mononistic world face would, you know, might put an ear towards. 
As I said, Moses has mentioned it in Islam. We get a lot of um, press about Islam these days, but it is one of our um, partnering faiths in that it is monotheistic. And I just want to read a story here. This is the, the Islamic version of Moses, and it comes from a portion of the Quran. And the interesting thing about this is that um, I'm not even supposed to be reading it in English. Because if you read from the Quran, you're supposed to read it in Arabic. Otherwise, it's sort of the, because the form changes, it changes the meaning. But let's read it just a little bit. This is the, the Islamic version of Moses. After eight years, Moses left with his wife and family. On their journey, he saw a fire in the direction of Mount Tour. He made his family halt there. While he ran towards the fire, hoping to obtain some information about the neighborhood, or at least get a burning firebrand to keep his family warm. When Moses reached the spot, he heard a voice from above the trees on the right side of the sacred valley. What have you in your right hand, the voice said. Bewildered, Moses replied, it is my staff, which I bring down the leaves for my sheep and do many other things. The voice spoke again, O oh Moses, I am the Lord of the universe. Cast down your staff and listen to me. Moses threw it down, and there before his eyes it became a writhing serpent. The Lord spoke again, draw near it and fear not. Now seize the serpent and do not be afraid. It will become a staff again. Moses did as he was told. God then asked him to place his right hand into his bosom and to bring it out again. It was shining white and without any stain. God then blessed him with supreme revelations and commanded him to go to Pharaoh and his people and to preach them the oneness of God and the glory of righteous conduct. So again, I read this to challenge our thinking, that our story is not completely unique. The story that we read this morning is also held by others, a little bit different at some points. But it's about how do we begin to see the bigger picture again? How do we create bridges with our neighbor? Now, I believe in the creed. We didn't do the creed this morning. I believe in the Nicene Creed that we read and that professes our faith. I believe that this states that Christ came incarnationally. And incarnationally, incarnation is a, is a very important word. It was when I went through my uh, missionary training, it was probably the word that we heard over and over and over about God, about Christ coming incarnationally, that Jesus came down from heaven, he took on flesh so that he could show his love, so that he could die in the flesh, fully God and fully man, for our redemption. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw and beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that model of Christ's incarnational representation on earth is the model of missions. Again, this is a missions sermon. So in case you're concerned or worried anything I've said so far, which could, could have happened, I don't know, my faith in black and white, if you want to know what my black and whites are, is, is the Nicene Creed of 325, nearly 1,700 years ago, talking about Christ being incarnate, Christ coming fully God, fully man, Christ redeeming mankind. Now how we share that message is down to culture, context, and tactics. And that's really the, 
the message here this morning. And speaking of missionaries, let us not forget the missionary efforts of other. Let's think about the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I don't agree with everything about the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I think some of the, their um, feelings towards the Nicene Creed, they may not have all those down. But I can't fault them for their missionary efforts. I mean, within my neighborhood, the Jehovah's Witnesses come around about every five to six weeks. I mean, they are on it. The Mormons, they are on it. They encourage all their young people to go out, as you probably know, and they have to do a year's service. They can't drink. They can't have uh, any sort of boyfriend, girlfriends, whether out on the, on the field. They're just strict service. Now, again, I don't think we can fault them for their missionary efforts. You know, and there's others. I mean, this is the month of Ramadan. I don't know many Christians that are fasting for 30 days. I think the most I ever did was about three days. And I cheated by drinking lots of juice. Or I started making milkshakes that I put protein powder in and banana, which is a bit of a cheat. But when I talk to a lot of my Muslim colleagues that work within this building, or when I go to Starbucks, you know, they're, it's not an easy thing. They're, they're telling me they're dizzy, they're not feeling well. I gotta get up early. And all I'm saying is that it's admirable. And I think sometimes as Christians we can learn from others. We must remember that we are lifetime missionaries, that we are culture sharers, that we are incarnational witnesses of God at our work in our world, in our community, in our neighborhood. He calls us to be his ambassadors. He calls us to be his voice, his hands. I mean, Mother Teresa used to say that she was just a little pencil in God's hands. He wants us to identify with our neighbors, with our community, with, just as God identified with the Egyptians, speaking and living within these communities and sharing the challenging meaning and reflection of God's love. And my last point is the offense of the gospel. The New Testament tr scriptures say that the gospel is an offense. In Galatians 5.11. And it acknowledges that the, the message of Christ is hard to hear. It's not easy. We can think of the rich young ruler in the New Testament. When he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, go and sell everything you have and follow me. We can debate about which would have been harder for him, either giving up his money or following Christ. Point is, we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler, but we can only guess that he didn't follow him. He found it difficult to follow Christ. So as a missionary, may we offend people for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons, not for cultural reasons. I went to Starbucks this morning, got my coffee, saw this young woman, name was Yisu, and the way she pronounced it, it sounded Chinese maybe. So I said, oh, are you Chinese? She said, no, I'm Korean. Oh, I said, I'm sorry, I have to apologize. But she wasn't offended. But that's the whole idea is that let's not offend people culturally or possibly offend them. Let's look at colonialism. 
I realize many of our audience here are from colonies. I'm from a colony. I'm a colonial. When the gospel came to California, it came with the Spanish army, and it also came with the priests. Now, when you come with an army, you're also sending a message. I'm not sure you necessarily will always want that message. And we have many people here in the congregation, as I know, that are represented in those colonies. So when the gospel went there, did it communicate the form of what church was like back in the 1600s, 1700s? Did it communicate the meaning? I'm, I'm hoping that it communi communicated the meaning because we're sitting here this morning, or both. I found it very interesting. I was, I was speaking to one of my missionary teachers and they had been in the Caribbean for, she wasn't a Christian, but she had been in the Caribbean for many, many years. And she said that when she went to some of the churches in the Caribbean, they looked like, tended to look like the way they did church services in England. They had deacons and they had songs and they had an offering. And I thought, okay, well I can sort of understand that. But then the other thing that sort of blew my mind, she says then when we, she went to the juju service, which was the voodoo service, it looked the same too. They had deacons, they had offerings, they had speaking in tongues. And I thought, mm, that, that, that challenged me a bit because I sort of had this vision if you were in a voodoo service, it would, I don't know, look different or something. And she also said that some of the people that went to the church service I'm not, I'm not making a judgment here, but some of the people that went to ch the church service in the morning went to the, the voodoo service in the, in the afternoon, probably because they really hadn't been communicated the meaning of the gospel of Christ and perhaps to give up those things. But the point was, is that there was, some went to one in the and they looked exactly the same. Again, which means, gets me to think that what was communicated then was that the meaning was more, or sorry, the form was more important than necessarily the meaning. Now, you know, as Tony said, that I'm American, and you know that we have uh, American football, American gridiron football now is up at Wembley three times a year. And I don't know if some of you have gone to American football or at least to big games at, at uh, Wembley Stadium. But often when you're walking to your seats at Wembley Stadium, there's usually somebody standing there on the side with a speaker, who's a Christian, and they are giving it some welly, as we say here. They are preaching the, the gospel. And they, I found it in a couple different forms. Maybe you've seen this. They're either just reading scripture and just repeating it over and over, different types, or they're giving a sermon, or they're doing a little bit of both. And they seem, as you walk by, they're just kind of preaching out into the air. And, you know, there's thousands and thousands of people walking by. Does this work? How do you, what do you think about, I call him speaker man. I haven't seen a woman ever. Speaker man. What do you think about speaker man when you walk by him? Is he effective? For me, missologically, as a missionary, it doesn't work. Now, I understand maybe why does he do it? Maybe he does it because he holds the scriptures so powerfully that if we give the word out 
you know, the scripture says if you preach the word that it won't come back in vain or without with reward. Or maybe he feels like he's doing his duty. Maybe he doesn't want to get to heaven one day and stand before the Savior and feel like he didn't preach the word. Or maybe he's t- actually taking the, the scriptures literally to go out and make disciples. But I would like to propose that as a missionary, missiologically, it doesn't work. Because I think it has to be more than just about rattling off a testimony or preaching words into the air. I don't feel there's any magic about the scriptures just by saying, I do feel that the the scriptures are powerful. I do feel they're inspired by God. But I think just throwing them out there, I'm not sure. I think it has, as a missionary, it has to be about intelligently getting to know others, about identifying with them, sharing with them using wisdom, cultural discernment, sharing and reflecting God's love. Now, I'm not trying to put, if any of you are speaker man, I haven't met you, I admire your enthusiasm, I admire um, the guts it takes to stand there, some of these people are getting ridiculed, I don't ridicule them, I'm sort of quietly envious of them or quietly thinking, you know, it takes a lot of guts to do that, but I think being a missionary, a lifetime missionary, I think it requires building relationships and beginning to think and to involve yourself in people's lives. Now we have a friend who's a, um, my wife, I have a wife, I have a daughter who's a five-year-old, and myself, and we have a friend who's a nominal Muslim. And her daughter goes to my daughter's, they're in my daughter's class together. Now, she has very few uh, cultural reference points. She happens to be single now, because she split with her husband. She's had a, quite a, um, acrimonious break with him and we've been befriending her for a couple years. Our children play together, we go to the park together, we eat together. Um, and as I said, she's a, she's a nominal Muslim. And we've had her to our, uh, our house to, I said, to, to eat and to play and one day they came over to our house and it was at the end of the day and the children were really hungry. Her child, she has two children, my daughter, they were just starving. And fortunately enough, we had food. We had a huge plate of spaghetti, spaghetti bolognese. So we had one little problem, the meat. We had forgotten about the meat. The meat was pork. Her daughter was hungry. So her daughter, she, she knowingly, she let her daughter try it. Um, the girl didn't like the taste of it. And this was enough for her to all of a sudden, for her, her culture to kick in, her religion to kick in. And she responded culturally, and even though her children was hungry, she didn't feed it to her son. She ended up giving him just noodles and, and, and butter and stuff. And doing that, by us offering the food and her having her ch- child eat the, the bolognese, it was stretching her cultural and religious framework just a little bit too far. She didn't have that many cultural um, marking points, but eating pork, that was a bit too far. And on reflection, this was not about getting her child to eat meat that had a religious taboo. It was not about us trying to force her to do something different. But in the end, it was about us recognizing that this was something that was important to her culturally and us remaining in relationship with her. It was us realizing that this is something that, you know, is not something that that she does. 
Now, again, when I was at the, the East, um, at my mission, mission school, I remember there was a smart aleck student. We had lots of smart aleck students as mission students. They tend to be a bit wild sometimes. And one of the students said, okay, Dr. Whiteman, what does that mean? Does that mean if I want to go with, work with punk rockers, I have to have a pink mohawk? Or does it mean if I want to work with bikers, I have to go buy a Harley Davidson? Or does it mean if I want to work with surfers, I brought my surfer shirt, that I have to wear a surfer shirt and start surfing? And no, now for me, be, for me, I could be a, a missionary to surfers because I'm from Southern California. I know where the beaches are. I know I've got to wear sandals. I've got to buy a surfboard, listen to Beach Boys music. And my response from my professor was, well, yes, it does mean that. You do need to go get a mohawk. You do need to go get your Harley Davidson jacket. I nearly brought my Harley Davidson jacket this morning, but I couldn't, it's just too much to carry. But he said it's more than that. It's more than just wearing the shirt. I need you to begin to think like a surfer. I need you to begin to see how they view authority. How do, what are their relationships like? What do they do on the weekends? What is it like with their relationship with their parents to get into the mindset of how they see, how they view the world? That's what it's about. It's more than just an external outside thing. And upon graduation, our, our missions professor gave us a, a little poem. And it was from the founder of Chinese Taoism, Lao Tzu. It's called, We Have Done This Ourselves. And I liked it. And it goes like this. It says, go to the people, live with them, learn from them, love them. Start with what they know, build with what they have, but with the best leaders, when the work is done, when the task is accomplished, the people will say, we have done this ourselves. We often think about this in, in the charity at St. Vincent's Family Project. How do we use our Vincentian values to share our faith, our Christian values? How do we live it within our own lives? Within the charity, we have a a reputation for delivering very high standard direct services to vulnerable people. We try to offer a community that inspires, supports, and builds resilient families. We have a hyper-diverse community of client families, everybody there and their brother. And that's part of the beauty of it, I think. We have these six Vincentian values that, we, that try to underpin our work, and they are respect, inspiration, and this is the missiological one, I think. Traveling with those whom we serve, professionalism, a holistic reproach, and compassion. And hopefully, we're able to share those values. Hopefully, we're different because of those values. I have a student intern now named Zoe. I had her in my office the other day, about two days ago, and started talking to her. She's American, she's from Chicago. And she identifies herself as an atheist. She grew up in a Greek Orthodox home. She doesn't go anymore. Grandma died and sort of lost the touch that she had with the, with the faith. But she said to me that even though she didn't see a crucifix in the charitable offices 
or didn't see a picture of St. Vincent. She could see our Vincentian values worked out by the staff. She could see the way that the, the family members treated each other, responded to each other. She could see the values in operation. And this reminded me of the quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, who supposedly said, preach the gospel at all times, and if absolutely necessary, use words. I hope that's something that we're able to do within our charity. This approach that I'm saying this morning is not without risk, though. We don't always get it right. There was a famous missionary. He was a Jesuit. His name was Matteo Ricci. He was Italian. He went to China about four or five hundred years ago. He learned to speak Chinese. He was able to write classical Chinese and actually read classical Chinese. He was able to adopt a very unused Chinese word called Lord of Heaven as a way to communicate who God was to the Chinese people. But many people thought he went too far. Even people, other orders, thought he went too far and over-identified and began to, began to water down the faith. That's up for interpretation. You know, we're in a very unique place here in London. I often see it as a dim representation, a dim reflection of the new Jerusalem that will one day be in heaven. We're a place here in London and also within my charity of many nations, all shapes, sizes, different flavors. And just as one day in, in the new Jerusalem that all people will worship God. The biblical new Jerusalem will be a place where all nations come together to love God and worship him forever. And may we go forward to seek and identify with our own neighbors, seeing life as they do, and becoming meaning makers within those communities. God chose to effect his plan, his plan through a human agent, Moses. And may we be willing to do the same, to share the love of God and hope of eternal life. Thank you. Thank you, Albie, for taking us beyond the simple message to go and then imagine what we do. We're going to sing, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, then sings my soul, my Saviour God, to thee.